1: right this way.
0: It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee Tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com.
2: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new?
3: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Rob, I cannot think of a better person to talk to than you because, as I was mentioning uh, to you, I think a couple of weeks ago, somehow you're still in my phone as a writer for the two man game. Now, correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong. What
4: were the years that you were at the two man game? Oh, God. I mean, it must have been 2008 until 2012-ish, I would say.
3: Perfect. I got to update my Rolodex. But during that time period, you covered the Dallas Mavericks title run, right? You got a book deal out of it. I mean, you were really balling, living large down there in the Big D, right? That's the way. So that's why I said you can't think of a better person to talk to about this weekend's events in the NBA than you, because to me, the center of the NBA universe kind of improbably was Dallas uh, and the sensational start by Maverick second year, do everything playmaker, Luka Doncic. He had multiple triple doubles this weekend. He had a very memorable showdown head to head with LeBron James. Uh, the Lakers wound up winning that one. Uh, In overtime after the game, LeBron paid him the highest possible praise by basically swearing in his general direction for like five straight seconds. Um, Wouldn't we all want that kind of, uh, you know, love and appreciation from our colleagues? So, Rob, I mean, where are you at right now? Are you considering moving back to Dallas to get in on this? Are you still comfortable in the Bay Area? Um, And what does it mean for you personally to see, uh, you know, Dallas kind of back on the map?
4: Well, I mean, Dallas has to be the new center of the sports media world, right? Like, we're going to start doing studio shows live from Dallas. Let's all get down there. Let's get in on maybe not the ground floor, but at least like level one, level two of the the Luca kristaps porzingis partnership. We
3: well, should. I mean, I went to a game there last year. Got to say, great seats because there weren't that many people covering it. You know what I mean? They had me courtside. Yeah. I think there was like maybe 10 writers there, and I'm starting to get the sensation that the momentum is building. What are you seeing from Luka Doncic out of the gate? You might remember my one correct prediction uh, from the preseason podcast. I I put Luka out there as a possible most improved player candidate. Uh, it's going to to that script so far, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I mean, it turns out to be a great take in retrospect. But I mean, let's clear one thing up right off the top, which was there was this strange kind of burbling opinion that Luca in his rookie season was maybe closer to his ceiling than other rookies was maybe a little further along and thus had you know a less exciting developmental trajectory than other rookies that was always kind of bogus i mean he i think he was already a star level player last season and but he also had all these you know kind of obvious ways he could improve and we're starting to see some of those, you know, the conditioning certainly better, but it could still get even better. You know, his shot selection, I think, is is trending in the right direction, but he still takes some some weird shots in in, uh, in crunch time, especially some stuff that's maybe a little too daring for my tastes. And so we have a guy who is already putting up triple doubles already, you know, the mechanism for, a, you know, the best offense in the league to date, really driving a lot of what they do with his drive and kick action. And yet he could still go another step or two beyond that. So there really aren't many more exciting players in the league right now. I think we saw that in terms of his kind of one-on-one duel with LeBron.
3: Right. So there was a bunch of different like kind of question marks or whatever nitpicks about Luka before the draft, where is he going to be quick enough to kind of get to his spots? Is he going to be in shape? Is he a prime time athlete? Uh, You know, these kinds of knocks. Has he addressed all of these already, in your opinion? I mean, do you feel like not only he's taken a step forward, maybe from where he was last year, but that we need to kind of rewrite the book on him?
4: I think a little bit. And some of it, I think it was just kind of underestimated the impact of his size and what that would mean. And I think people in, in their heads, when they were conceptualizing what Luka would look like in the NBA, were thinking of a combo guard type player who may not have the athleticism to get by his man. But instead, he's this giant wing who is one of the better rebounders on his team, who is able to finish at the rim at a really high rate because he has that step back, because he has the playmaking ability. And now he has, you know, a, a couple of stretch bigs around him between Chris Stapps and Maxi Kaliba uh, and then a role man in Dwight Powell as well. So there's a lot of space going on. So finishing around the basket is not a problem. Creating a shot, obviously not a problem just with the distance he gets on that step back. I think we do have to rewrite the book a lot. Um, the, the one thing that I think has held up is... You know, what kind of defender is he going to be? And we saw that a little bit in that Laker game specifically where when the Mavs start switching and the Lakers started hunting Luka and hunting that matchup and trying to challenge him directly one-on-one Uh, with some matchups, and that's going to be the area where he's going to need to improve just to show that he can withstand those. He doesn't have to be a great defender, but he has to show that he can be big, that he can hold his ground, that he can, you know, alter some shots, draw some offensive fouls, whatever it may be. That's ultimately, I think, kind of the next step in his development to be, you know, a really complete, not just regular season player, but potential postseason player as well.
3: Yeah, the hunting of him that you're mentioning, it reminds me of what James Harden went through when he was, you know, early in his career. I mean, the Blazers used to just go at him, you know, mercilessly, uh, time after time after time, especially when he's kind of off-ball, not paying attention. You you know, you turn your head the wrong way, guys are cutting around you. Um, I think that, you know, the, the scouting report is definitely out on him for that kind of stuff. Uh, You're mentioning his size and physicality. I think it's important to know that he drops all this weight. He definitely gets into better shape. And yet he still possesses that, you know, high volume rebounder for his position, uh, forceful guy in traffic, and then he can take it and go. I mean, it's just so tantalizing to watch him do that. Uh, And I think that's where some people, maybe it's because he idolized LeBron James Uh, Maybe it's because the hype factory always goes to like these, you know, huge big time players, you know, you're always getting comp to like Michael Jordan or LeBron or, or one of these type uh, guys. Do you see any LeBron in his game when you're describing uh, him going to the basket, you're describing, you know, his feel, maybe his touch uh, as a passer? I mean, there's a lot of things to like about Luka. Is there anything to that comparison or is that uh, a bridge too far?
4: I think there's something to it as a playmaker. He's not as dynamic because he's not as quick as LeBron was, especially earlier in his career. But you see it on the cross-court stuff. And I think that was what we've really seen in terms of this early season from Luka is the number of passes he throws that are just like right on the money are just an exceptional level. There are a lot of guys who can you know, hit their shooters, who can hit their role men, maybe even can do some of the cross-court stuff that LeBron has made, you know, really a staple of the modern NBA and, you know, does it better than anyone. But I think Luka, in terms of his delivery on those passes, has been really impressive. And that's one of those things where, with the nature of how he plays, and he does play kind of a James Harden-esque style, in terms of trying to break his guy down from the top of the floor, playing off of that step back, playing off of some high pick and roll game, it can look a little bit stagnant. And if you were a lesser playmaker, it probably wouldn't work at a team level. But when you're able to deliver to Seth Curry on the opposite side of the floor in the corner for when there's just like a tiny window of delivery and you're able to put it there, I think that's what really gives the Mavs uh, some promise in terms of what they could you know ultimately be. Because if you can w- walk that tightrope, it makes you very very difficult to guard as an offense, and that's kind of. Ultimately, the promise of Luka, I think, is that he has all these weapons that he can deliver like that. He doesn't have the complete LeBron game in quite the same way. I think stylistically, they're different aside from the passing. But the fact that we're even talking about him as like a weird James Harden-LeBron hybrid is uh, about as high as praise gets.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't even want to call him like a poor man's LeBron. I feel like he's more of like a middle class tax bracket LeBron. Okay. Like whatever LeBron does at a 10 level, Luca's sort of like settling in it at that 7 or 8 level. And that's still a really, really good player given you know the standard that LeBron is kind of setting. Um, I definitely see some heart into what he's doing, especially with the step back threes. You know, going back to the criticism thing for a minute, I remember some overseas players kind of coming at Luca a little bit and saying he would struggle with the transition to the NBA. And his rookie season wasn't perfect. I think he hit the rookie wall a little bit. He didn't have a ton of help last year, uh, but he still was the clear cut rookie of the year in my eyes. Uh, but I was talking to a, a player who plays overseas, uh, you know, currently uh, this past week, and he is now all in on Luca, completely sold. And he's basically, he's saying, look, the guy loves the game and he has ridiculous feel. He has the kind of feel that you can't touch with the ball in his hands when it comes to orchestrating spacing, uh, looking for his own shot, being able to kind of create it against lots of different types of defenders, uh, finding high quality looks. And I think Dallas right now has the most efficient offense in the NBA and the ball is in his hands an awful lot. So, I'm not sure if Lucas may be winning over some converts here as well, uh, but I I think the scouts who were in on him during the pre-draft process, the people who were really hyping up, uh, just you know the incredible production he was putting up at a young age, his uh, competitiveness to go against older players uh, when he was in Europe, and then just you know the, the touchy-feely things like you know feel and uh, you know vision and heart I mean those kinds of things were always in his uh you know pluses column I think all of those things have come through in a big time way and that's what gets me so excited about his uh you know his long term ceiling I mean has this run here to start this season uh, altered how you view Luka as a long term type player is he an MVP caliber type player in the NBA you know down the road sometime can he be the best player on a title team down the road sometime what do you think
4: I mean I think he could definitely have the production to be an MVP type candidate. It's, there's going to be a lot that needs to, you know, come out in the wash a little bit in terms of what his defense looks like, what the team around him, you know, their construction, how players feel about playing with him. Everyone's really excited and seems really, really jazzed about the prospect right now. And certainly the guys with him in Dallas, I think, respond really positively to the way he plays. But Rob, <laughs> wouldn't you want to play with him? I mean, let's be real. I mean, I would, but when you're, I think it does require a certain disposition to work alongside someone who has the ball in their hands that much. And if you're someone who wants to be a little bit more involved in a different way, and you don't want to watch Luca dribble the ball for eight to 10 seconds of the shot clock, I could understand why your taste might be a little different. So I think we have, there's a lot yet to be determined in terms of what kind of player he ultimately is. But when you look at kind of what his weaknesses are now and how he could incrementally kind of bump up you know, those attributes and those skills year over year. And they're not, you know, things that are impossible to improve. It's not like we're asking him to like invent a jump shot. He has so many of the hard skills already. It's just about implementation and things like that. We're kind of knocking on the door if he improves his defense, if he keeps improving his conditioning, if he cleans this stuff up, we're knocking on the door of like a top 10, top 15 kind of skill set. And that's, I mean, that's not middle-class LeBron. That's, you know, in, in the spirit of Dallas, like suburban McMansion LeBron. (laughs)
3: very nice um i think coming into the draft i viewed him maybe having a an all nba level ceiling uh i'm not going to try to quote myself on that i don't have perfect memory here but i don't feel like i was totally sold that he was going to be an mvp level player um i think i'm there now i think that he can get there uh you know five years i mean part of it is just that he's so young part of it is the lack of other playmakers, especially American playmakers in his, his age bracket. And we know how important these kinds of guys are, uh, his youth, uh, and then just how quickly he's acclimated to everything and how he does make his teammates better. You know, I don't, I still don't think he has that much help down there in Dallas right now. I think they had a pretty good summer. Uh, not a great summer. And of course a Porzingis trade was a, a home run for them. Uh, but you know, to me, I'm starting to get pretty excited, pretty tingly about Lucas ceiling. You know, we got a question here from Zach uh, in Columbus. He writes, as Ben saw from my Instagram story, great plug, Zach. I was in Cleveland with great seats to see Luka, Chris Stapps, and the rest of the Mavericks take on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Guys, I went into this game thinking I knew just how good Luka and Chris Stapps were. I've seen them play on League Pass. I know their skill sets, and I knew they were going to be fun to watch. To say they were impressive was an understatement. Luca can do it all. He had 15 assists to go with 29 points and 14 rebounds. Chris Stapps was gliding through the lane to get to the basket. That was dazzling. And both have smooth outside shots. Are the Mavericks legit a playoff threat? this season so um, you know there's nothing better than a trip to Cleveland to make you look great by comparison so we probably we probably should uh, (laughs) that goes on and off the court by the way Uh, but uh, you know we probably should put that asterisk on his email well what do you think Rob are you know your Dallas Mavericks your hometown Dallas Mavericks going to the 2020 playoffs
4: it's certainly looking pretty good at the moment but With the roster they have, I think we have to wait it out because Kristaps' health is going to be big. If Luka ever sustains an injury this season, they're going to be in a really bad way. I think they're very susceptible to any injury-related trouble to those guys because the rest of the roster, while competent and has been successful so far, is pretty thin from a pure talent standpoint. So I think they're one of these teams that if they get hit are just going to be really stuck. But as it's looked right now, I mean, they look like a playoff team, don't they?
3: Yeah, I mean, they're definitely in that mix. I mean, Golden State falling out, you got to figure they're going to be replaced by the Lakers. So there's not exactly a ton of spots like wide open, you know, ready to go. Um, But I think that they should be in it for the long haul. I haven't seen enough to be sold on them sustaining it, you know, for five or six months. Um, I do think that Porzingis can play better than he's shown so far. To me, it still seems like he's trying to get his legs a little bit. Um, I know people were killing him for his late game performance against the Lakers, I think that's one situation where, you know, a little bit of patience is in order. I mean, this guy almost didn't play for like two straight years. So uh, let's just kind of like pump the brakes on that. Uh, And then also in terms of their wins, I think it's important to note that they haven't necessarily played, uh, you know, the best uh, schedule to date. I mean, they've got wins over Washington, New Orleans, Cleveland, and Denver. So you're talking about one quality win in there, and their losses are to two projected playoff teams. That would be Portland uh, and the Lakers. So to me, uh, the playoff stock, uh, talk is still premature, uh, but go crazy with the Luka hype. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's been a fascinating career to to track just because of that trade with Trey Young, because he did drop past multiple teams who definitely could have used him, uh, you know, in Phoenix and Sacramento. And, you know, I would hate to be Vlade Divac right now, man. Can you imagine being Vlade knowing that you passed on Luka, Marvin Bagley Jr. is out with a fluky injury. You get off to a horrible start. People are already calling for Luke Walton's head. Uh, you know, you, you were on the record over the summer saying that you've got a super team just young. Uh, there's nothing really super about these Sacramento Kings. And you could have been the beneficiary of all this positive vibes that uh, that Luka brings to the table. I mean, is it fireable, Rob? Is it crazy to say that if your ownership, you kind of look at the King start plus what Luka's doing? And just kind of say, you know what, uh, or even what Trey's doing in Atlanta, and just say, you know what, Vlade, that's that's unforgivable. Uh, you're going to have to pay for that one.
4: Not not to defend the process there, but I do feel like firing Vlade or anybody because Luca and Trey are good is a very it would be a very Kings thing to do.
3: Well, yeah, but it was also a very King th- Kings thing to not pick Luca. <laughs> I mean, True. come on, like we all knew that was a disaster when it happened. I mean, it's so ridiculous. That Trey Young and Luka Doncic did not go 1-2 in that draft. Why would anyone draft a big in that draft? I have no idea. Look where DeAndre Ayton is. I mean, completely off the map for two months. Um, It's insane. But let me just focus back here. I got a little too worked up there. (laughs) If you were Atlanta, are you still cool with the Trey Young trade? Uh, Or would you hit the undo button and just keep Luka? Gun to your head right now. What do you think?
4: I mean, I would take Luka between them just based on the value of a wing in the modern NBA, based on the size and stuff like that that we've already talked about. But you can feel really good about it regardless, whether you want to look at it as Trey and, you know, a potential number 10 pick, which is what it turned out to be. Now, if, if you want to look at it as, as Cam Reddish specifically, that's like a different level of kind of scrutiny and analysis we can go to, but it could have been Tyler Hero, or it could have been anyone else you liked in that draft at 10. Uh, I think... It really did turn out pretty well for both sides. I think they both have a lot of reason to be excited about it. But when in doubt, go with the guy who, as we've been discussing, could be a potential MVP of the league or All-NBA type talent in Luka.
3: Okay. I said I was over the Kings thing. I lied. I'm not. <laughs> Let's go. Would you trade the entire Kings roster Oh boy, for Luka? If you could have the choice, you could have Luka and 14 replacement level players or the Kings roster Building forward for the next five years, what would you prefer? I don't even know I mean, how to. Just, conce-
4: I don't even know how to conceptualize what this looks like. So I'm just going to say I'll keep the Kings roster.
3: No, you don't want the Kings roster. Stop <laughs> lying, Rob. You want Luca. I mean, let's be real. I mean, you're okay. You've got to sell tickets. You've got a great fan base in Sacramento who's all in and wants players to love. Right? You haven't made the playoffs in more than a decade. You haven't had a winning record in basically that same amount of time. You need a franchise player more than any other organization in the entire league. I think that's fair to say. And De'Aaron Fox is awesome. But the difference to me, long-term ceiling-wise, between De'Aaron Fox and Luca is pretty significant. I would not say that De'Aaron Fox has MVP potential down the line. I would say he has all-NBA potential for sure. Uh, but there's a smaller group of guys who can make that MVP cut. You really want to chill with that Kings roster over just getting to enjoy the Luka experience?
4: No, I just don't know how to even think of what a roster with like 29 people on it would look like in the alternative.
3: (laughs) All right, fine. Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, Look, Vivek, if you want to, you know, start negotiations with every player you have under contract for Luka, I'm your guy. I can help uh, facilitate that. And by the way, Dallas would not do that. Dallas would keep Luca over Sacramento's entire roster, don't you think?
4: No, I do. And and like let's let's circle back. <laughs> let's circle back on this too for one second about whether this is a fireable offense. If the justification for not taking Luca was because he and DeAaron Fox couldn't coexist as the creators of a team, that might be a fireable offense. How about
3: any reason for not taking Luca is a fireable offense? <laughs> what what is the justification that is okay that makes it fine? I mean, even if you're Marvin Bagley's direct family member, you could still talk yourself into taking Luca over Marvin Bagley in Sacramento, can't you?
4: You think they're gonna draft him into like the Christmas invite draft? Just like <laughs> let's let's bring Luca back for Christmas this year, Marvin. Sorry, you're on your own.
3: I just I don't see it. I mean, it's just it's crazy to me. I liked Marvin Bagley as a prospect coming up, but it was pretty clear he had some questions in terms of positional fit, in terms of his defense. He was not this blue chipper guy. When they took him, people were pretty surprised. They did telegraph it. They kind of gave people a heads up that they were going to do it, uh, but that didn't make it right. And I just don't know process or results or logic or whatever you want to call it from the Sacramento Kings. How do you possibly justify it? And every single one of these things applies to the Phoenix Suns too, by the way, because they had a coach who was the Slovenia's coach, they knew better than anyone how good Luka was, at least they should have, and they decided to go with the local college kid who played at uh, Arizona at a position of marginal uh, utility uh, in the NBA at a time when they needed a big-time playmaker too. I don't get it, Rob. I don't understand. Ryan McDonough has not survived. I'm not going to say it was because of that particular decision, because we all know it's a long list of decisions that kind of contributed to his untimely demise there in Phoenix. But uh, if I was an owner, these are the kinds of things that would kill me because there was so much hype around Luke, everybody kind of realized who he could potentially be before the draft. Uh, there was a loud contingent of people screaming that he should be the number one pick. And, you know, really three teams, uh, you know, pass on, on that opportunity.
4: Well, I just want to express my condolences to Marvin Bagley, who is already a pretty nice player, you know, could be a really, really good player in time, who's just going to have this hung around his neck for his entire career. And it's it's one of the shitty things about the draft that if you get taken one or two spots too high or 10 or 11 spots too high, depending on who you are and where you're selected, that it can really come to define your career. But I have a feeling this is not exactly the end of the Trey Young, Luka Doncic comparisons for our guy, Marvin.
3: Yeah. And look, sorry for the strays to Marvin. Okay. Uh, Not his fault. And he has actually been a very good team player and soldier about going to Sacramento. A lot of guys don't want to go to Sacramento. He embraced it. uh, And I think that, uh, you know, his his injury is unfortunate. He'll move past that with no problem. I think he's going to have a nice sophomore season too. This is just more about, you know, big picture decision-making that drives me absolutely nuts. Uh, By the way, if I was Atlanta. It's really tough. I would probably stick with Trey because it does seem like he's already developed a pretty special relationship with their fan base and because they've already started to really mold the roster around him. So I don't know if I would hit the undo button on the uh, on the Luca trade quite yet. But uh, like you said, that one's going to get uh, rehashed here going forward. Kind of no question.
0: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for...
1: How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com.
2: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash
1: paid by up-level rewards paid participation required after portrayal
2: attention all
5: listeners are you ready to earn 750 dollars? well get ready because i'm about to introduce you to get 750.com the ultimate way to earn here's the scoop instead of just streaming shows or playing games on your phone for nothing you have the chance to earn additional cash That's right, from trying out new subscriptions to playing your favorite mobile games, you can get extra cash in your pocket. Simply sign up at GetMy750.com and follow the instructions to start earning immediately. So, what are you waiting for? Turn your favorite apps into real cash. With GetMy750.com, don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to earn rewards for things you're already doing on your phone. Check out GetMy750.com today. That's right, get started right now at GetMy750.com. Just go to GetMy750.com, or Google get my 750 cash follow the simple instructions and get your750 that's get 750com get my750.com
3: all right Rob let's uh, switch gears to double back here on something that we talked about in depth uh, a few weeks ago that's the China issue now this week I talked to uh, the head of the players union Michelle Roberts and she gave really her first extensive comments um, about Uh, the fallout from China and about what it meant to players uh, and basically her union members. And, And we'll just go through this quickly. She says, we don't have the luxury of confining ourselves to the four corners of the United States as the game is expanding globally. And the union is interested in having a greater impact outside the United States. I need to, and the players need to be more aware of the world around us. The China standoff were difficult days and the problem hasn't gone away. We need to address it as a union and as a sport we've got to be a little bit more intentional about how we navigate the world given what happened this past month and then i said of course well how do you plan to do that she said uh, for many of the players that went over to china it was their first trip there many had no idea what was going on in hong kong and most americans let alone basketball players are not aware of the politics in that region if we're going to be sending our guys all over the globe, we have to make sure they're armed with the knowledge of where they are going and what's happening in the locales they're visiting. That, that's a role we're going to play as a union. It's a role I don't think we've done a good job of fulfilling to date. So she's falling on the sword here a little bit for guys like LeBron James and, and James Harden, who got a lot of heat uh, for their comments on China. She's basically saying, look, as a union, we needed to give these guys information before they even went to China. Um, or before you know, as soon as Daryl Morey you know sparked the controversy, so that everybody was fully informed and capable of commenting. Uh, one other issue that came up to mind, Rob, was actually a couple of years ago. Do you remember when Kevin Durant went to India and came back and was talking about monkeys in the streets and cows everywhere and how far behind the times India was, and he was met with really loud, kind of boisterous um, criticism for being culturally insensitive. I think that experience, coupled with this China experience, I think both of those things are influencing Michelle Roberts here. I think she's realizing that if the NBA keeps doing these uh, global games and th- these preseason and there's going to be an Olympics, uh, of course, in Tokyo next summer, that these problems are just going to continue happening and they've got to figure something else out.
4: No, that's a great pull on Kevin Durant's comments about Indy. I had totally forgotten about that, honestly. the The cycle moves so quickly. But, I I mean, Michelle Roberts is being a realist here. And, you know, as a representative for the players in mass, you just can't take a stance that everyone should make less money because we're going to take a political stance regarding this giant international market. It's just not something you can realistically do and sell to your constituency. And so taking the tact of this is where the NBA is going, this is an expansionist league in that phase of its growth. And therefore, the most important thing we can do is make sure that everyone is appropriately briefed on what to say or not to say or how to approach you know, international politics or politics on an international stage or not engage with them at all. I think that's really kind of the bare minimum of, of where the union and the league need to be and it's it's a party that you and I kind of glossed over in our initial discussions of this. I think we were focusing a lot on, you know, LeBron specifically or the NBA at large or the league office and what they should have done, but the union I think does have a really prominent role to play in this in terms of just getting guys up to speed whenever they go on these kinds of trips.
3: For sure, and we know her constituents want to do business in China, right? So she, her hands are tied kind of multiple different ways. It's not just about this idea of, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, pull out of China. It's like, no, we're actively wanting to be involved in, in doing business with endorsement deals and everything else, selling merchandise in China. So how do we do it the right way so that we don't wind up being uh, the enemy of the state? Right. Um, So totally pragmatic approach from her. Uh, you know, she also kind of closed the, the interview by saying, you know what, I wish the players would call me more, you know, I'd be glad <laughs> to give them advice on this kind of stuff. And I could kind of hear like a plea in her voice. And I really felt for it because uh, I'm sure they were blindsided by this, you know, at the players union, just like everyone else. And, and they really didn't take any criticism throughout the whole thing. I mean, that really all fell to the NBA. I think that's appropriate. But it did make me wonder like who was doing the briefing, if there was any briefing of these players, I imagine it would have just been the team PR professionals, right? And so maybe they didn't feel adequately prepared in these situations. Uh, maybe they didn't have a directive from above uh, from the NBA, you know, as it was happening in real time. I mean, it's clear that uh, pretty much everyone, including the league office based on their first statement was kind of caught off guard. And I think there was probably just a trickle down effect, which led a lot of people to, you know, kind of muzzle up, not say anything. Um, and then just kind of, you know, wait until you come back to the, the United States. And to me, uh, that should be cleaned up. I mean, they can't allow that kind of ugly, silent type situation to fester in future trips abroad. They can definitely do a better job. And I, personally, I'm glad the union is stepping up because I think that um, they've got a lot of resources. Uh, they've helped the players in lots of different ways. I mean, you know, it just seems to me like if you can go to the union and get a grant for your charity, or you can, you know, take a class on how to become a a restaurant franchise owner, uh, or you can, you know, get an internship with some Silicon Valley tech company through the union, uh, or take classes, you know, through Harvard Business School, you should at least be able to get a packet of information that explains the Hong Kong situation, right? I mean, that seems like kind of a bare minimum. And so I'm glad they're doing that. Um, All right, let's switch gears, Rob. Two questions from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Daniel from Poland writes, we need a rescue mission. I can't watch Kevin Love wasting his time in Cleveland anymore. I just finished watching the first quarter versus Dallas. He's still very good. 13 points in six minutes on seven shots. I'm afraid playing with Colin Sexton long-term might make him consider early retirement love should be on a real team where do you think he fits best and uh, daniel throws out the ideas of boston or portland uh what do you think rob is there a team you would like to see make a move for kevin love
4: i mean the trick with this stuff is always the salary matching right especially because kevin loves now making 28 million dollars and so it's who is competitive who needs a power forward. And who also has enough expendable salary or room to accommodate that kind of deal? And so, you know, I thought about Miami for a little bit because what is Kevin Love if not just like a better version of Myers Leonard and what they have in that there? Uh, but I don't see them. I don't see them parting with Justice Winslow or Tyler Hero or Bam Adebayo in a deal. And so it's kind of a non-starter. You know, maybe they have Goran Dragic and some stuff, but I don't think that's a very attractive deal for the Blazers. Or sorry, for the for the Cavs, not to to jump ahead, but I do think the Blazers are ultimately the the spot that makes the most sense. As it turns out with a lot of, you know, power forward on the trade market, that's kind of the natural landing spot. And I think it's, you know, they have some salary to deal with, whether it's, you know, Hassan Whiteside potentially or Kent Bazemore is a pretty big contract you could deal with. Uh, But I think Zach Collins could be an interesting piece to entice the Cavs with. And if if you're in the Blazers position, and I think they have a lot of stuff they still need to figure out over the course of the year, but starting with some playmaking and some shooting at the four spot in a more dedicated capacity could make a lot of sense for them.
3: Yeah, man. I can really see that one both ways. So first of all, Zach Collins suffered a shoulder injury. So he's out. He's going to have surgery. He's out. I'm not sure if they have a timeline yet, but presumably quite a while. Um, So their need at that spot is just even more heightened. And if you start picturing a lineup where it's Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, uh, Rodney Hood, Kevin Love, Yusuf Nurkic as your playoff starting five, with, you know, a bunch of veteran guys kind of coming off the bench. I mean, that starts to get pretty tasty, right? Like you can start to picture that, you know, you got some shooting from multiple spots. You got three guys who can score. You got multiple uh, front court playmakers who can pass a basketball. Um, That gets pretty interesting. I think the hangup for Portland, though, the two major contracts with Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum adding a third huge deal. And Kevin Love's making 28.9 this year, more than 30 in the next two seasons. it it gets really tricky to sustain depth. I think going forward, if you have all three of those uh, contracts on the books, Um, it does help that Nurkic is on a kind of a bargain deal based on his production. So that could help alleviate uh, some of that. Uh, And of course, there's also the local angle with Kevin Love having gone to to Lake Oswego High School. So um, I think there's a lot to think about there. If you had the choice, though, and you were Portland, would you rather rent Danilo Gallinari and basically, take him on the expiring contract, pay that smaller price to get him, and, and realize maybe you are not bringing him back uh, next summer, or take on this long-term deal for Kevin Love, where I think his contract runs through like his age thirty-five season, um, which will mean that you know a couple years from now, uh, you know he could be kind of killing your window just by, by the presence of his deal.
4: Yeah, I think it would depend on how small the the return investment is in terms of what you're sending out because if it's a one year thing, then Collins is is kind of a non-starter I think and you know Anthony Simons guys like that are kind of a non-starter because if if you're Portland you want to be very careful about not trading away your upside guys if you're not getting something pretty concrete in return I love Danilo Gallinari in his game I think he'd be a really smart fit there for you know in a variety of ways but if you can't bank on him being there beyond this season I don't know that that's something I'd be super interested in.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you know Portland. I feel like they might be a little skittish on a Kevin Love. I guess I have to be, uh, I have to see it to believe it. You know that Neil O'Shea would actually take on, uh, you know, that huge investment. I think that he tends to fall in love with his draft picks and and overvalue the guys that he's selected and and believe in them uh, harder and longer uh, than anyone else. And so to see him cash in uh, for Kevin Love, where there's some pretty obvious red flags, I'm not sure. Uh, necessarily that he would do it. Another one I've seen floating around, Rob, would be uh, a deal maybe with the Houston Rockets, where you're you know building it around Clint Capella um, and swapping him for Kevin Love. What do you think about that fit? That would obviously put him into another big three. It would reunite him with you know his college buddy Russell Westbrook, um, and it would also just shake up Houston. And they maybe need a, a shake up at this point. I mean, things have been pretty ugly there at times to start the season. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down?
4: I mean, I think I would go thumbs down just because it may be one of the worst defenses on record. If it turns out that way, if you're asking Kevin Love to play five long term, it's already you know been a, a just a disastrous defensive performance to start this season. And while they could use the spacing, and you know empirically they've been really good when you can have a you know spacing five in there to go with some really elite penetrators. There's also the question of you know like Eric Gordon's already kind of chafing against his lack of touches and lack of shots, and he hasn't really been able to find a rhythm. Is there enough room for a star level power forward like Kevin Love, even one who's used to playing with LeBron and used to play, you know, being a spot up guy uh, for a good portion of his career. Now, is there room for a player like that alongside James Harden and Russell Westbrook?
3: Are you starting to agree with me that Houston might just be broken, man?
4: Well, I think their offense works really well. I've, I've been really encouraged by that overall. You know, the Gordon part aside, I think the offense has been pretty successful. It's just the question is, can they stop anybody? And they're giving up a ton of threes. They're giving up a lot of really good threes. There's just a, a lack of coordination. There's a lack of defensive positioning. It's it's some stuff you would expect with a team that relies on both Harden and Westbrook on the perimeter for a lot of minutes. But even just the the overall coordination of the defense, I think, has been pretty disappointing so far.
3: No, it's so impressive. It doesn't matter how far Golden State falls. Houston's going to find a way to fall further. (laughs) I I checked the defensive stats today. Golden State, 29th in the league in defensive efficiency. Rob, I'm going to give you one guess who's 30. Oh, no. Oh, no. Did they fall all the way to 30? Houston Rockets. You wouldn't believe it. It's the Houston Rockets. And they've earned it, man. They got run off the floor, embarrassed by the Miami Heat. They gave up 158 points to the Washington Wizards in one game. That sounds like 10 quarters worth of basketball against the Wizards. It was in four quarters. Um, it's a mess, man. I, I think they're broken right now. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. You know, we I came in kind of hyping up the dark clouds over that franchise, whether it's ownership, front office, uh, you know, locker room chemistry, and... I do think it's fair to say there's a timeline uh, or a timetable for every player being willing to be James Harden's uh, teammate, right? But being willing to play the style where it's completely built around him. And now you're bringing in Russell Westbrook. And I think a lot of the attention focused on the offensive fit between those two players. But I do think there's trickle-down effects too, whether it's Gordon uh, or everybody else. There's a lot of sacrificing going on. And it's just not the most enjoyable basketball experience to be, uh, you know, watching these guys do their thing um, and not necessarily, you know, keeping everything balanced, especially when you realize on the defensive end, they're going to be minuses, they're going to be drags and you're going to be responsible kind of for picking up uh, the slack and picking up the pieces. Uh, I mean, to me, being anyone like, you know, person three through 13 on Houston's roster, pretty miserable experience. Uh, And it doesn't surprise me at all that they've been super shaky, super inconsistent. And that Mike D'Antoni is kind of already, uh, you know, inching towards the panic button a little bit down there. Uh, I think it's something to watch. You know, the 30th defensive rating to me is such a red flag. When you look at some of these other teams in the league that are dealing with injuries, that are dealing with just poor rosters and a lack of talent for Houston to be worse than all of them. It's crazy.
4: Well, I do think if you're the third player on the team onward, it you know, playing with those two guys can prop you up in a certain sense. Like if you're PJ Tucker offensively, you're in just a perfect role for you and you're not overstretched, you're not asked to do too much, you can be kind of maximally efficient, but you really do, as as you mentioned, have to be wired in a particular way where you can get up and defend. You can be locked in on possessions even when you've been, you know haven't touched the ball in half a quarter. Uh, Not everyone is built for that. It's very hard. And as you alluded to, it's hard to do year after year after year. And so I don't know what, you know, ultimately where the Rockets will come down over the course of the season. I think it's, you know, we can't write them off yet. It's only been, you know, six or so games. I think there's still some reason to be optimistic about their chances, but the defense is absolutely not one of them.
3: All right, let's shift gears to another team uh, that, uh, you know, made a deep playoff run last year and then is maybe dealing with a little bit of, uh, you know, bounces to start the season. That's the Milwaukee Bucks. Alf writes, All the buzz around the Bucks is about making a midseason trade, particularly for Chris Paul. Is this not an admission of total failure by the Bucks front office? Chris Paul is a negative expected value in the playoffs at this point in his career, given that he has missed vital parts of the last two postseasons. Trading for him would be a pure gamble. Why does a team that was supposed to be number one in the Eastern Conference need to be making gambles like this except for a total failure on behalf of management? Very pointed question from Alf. I I can think of a few reasons. First of all, Alf, remember Giannis kind of came out of nowhere, right? And so Milwaukee was in a little bit of scramble mode in in terms of building around him after he blew up. It wasn't like they were like carefully cultivating this young core of guys who are gonna grow together. um, You know, one year Giannis just showed up as an all-star and it was like, Oh, all right, now our timeline's completely different than it was before and you know, they haven't been a major, you know, destination franchise in decades. So it took a real shift of focus and it actually, you know, involved a, a front office change as well. So there was a lot going on there. That's number one. Number two, you see the Chris Paul stuff because of Eric Bledsoe. Um, I'm not sure there's anyone left who trusts Eric Bledsoe in the playoffs at this point. That might sound a little bit harsh, but uh, it's been two straight years now where he's faltered and uh, i think if you take chris paul and put him in the eastern Conference playoffs uh you know some of uh, the critics or criticisms that have come his way over the years in the postseason are going to be uh, you know a little bit lessened you know i just the competition's easier uh, he's going to look better and more productive uh, you know relative to the talent out there so i think that he would actually be kind of a value add for a team uh, in the postseason but Rob, I guess ALF is really trying to hint at this idea. Is is something rotten in paradise, right? Um, Is Milwaukee still the same juggernaut that they proved to be last year? Or have they entered sort of a different phase of their organization and franchise? Uh, What have you seen so far from them uh, early on uh, to kind of answer that question?
4: Well, I think a lot of it you've already hit on, which is that Eric Bledsoe is not good enough for his current job. And that's something that's gonna be hard to work around all year. And as we've seen, every postseason that he's on the team. And so you have to consider point guard alternatives. You have to consider potential trades. Uh, It's not just a matter of a guy who can shoot or not shoot. Bledsoe, I think, puts you in so many difficult spots as an offense. And and that's a tough thing to say because he is a really good defender. He can be very effective on that side of the ball. But if you're going to run through Giannis, you have to have players who can fit around him a little bit more seamlessly than Bledsoe does. And, you know, I think that's where Chris Paul seems like a palatable alternative. A guy who can run an offense who's shown that he can do really well with second units when your superstar is off the floor who can fill that role pretty spectacularly who just kind of knows what to do in ways that you know you see blood so you know the ball swings to him on the catch and he freezes for a second or he doesn't want to shoot or he'll come out and shoot five threes in a quarter just to try to prove that he can it's just this perpetual yo-yoing between being indecisive and being overly decisive that puts him in a really awkward space and the bucks in an awkward space as, as a result of that I do want to correct the record a little bit. Not, to, I mean, I feel like I'm doing the same thing I did with Paul George, with Chris Paul here. On the idea that Chris Paul was somehow like or would have a negative expected value as a postseason performer, as Alf said, I think is a little off at this point. And, you know, this happens with a lot of guys who are, you know, are in a different stage of their career. But Paul was really important to the Rockets, even in last season's playoffs, where, you know, against the Warriors, when he was on the floor, they were basically a break-even team. When he was off the floor, they were getting crushed. I think having him as a secondary ball handler can be really impactful and important for the right team. You don't want him running the entire show anymore necessarily, but I still think he's pretty good. I mean, I think in a vacuum, you know, if you take away the salary concerns and, you know, what the long-term considerations, he could be good for a team like Milwaukee. It's just all that baggage that makes him really hard to acquire and to deal with and to, you know, really consider as a part of your team's future when he's just going to be making so much money.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'll take Chris Paul on crutches over Eric Bledsoe in the playoffs right now, and I wouldn't think twice about it. So, I mean, I, you know, if we're dealing with expected value conversation, let's focus on the expected value of some of the guys they already currently have in place. And I think that's why ownership has gotten a lot of justified flack here in the first week or two because of, you know, the the Malcolm Brogdon absence and factor. I think, um, you know, that's going to be something that hangs over this franchise the whole season long. Definitely when we get to the trade deadline, that decision not to pay him, um, is going to, uh, loom large and it's going to apply some pressure on their front office to go do something. I have seen a lot of hand wringing about Milwaukee's offense to start, you know, essentially saying, look, it's not the same aggressive downhill type style that, you know, inside out type offense that we saw last year. You know, the numbers bear that out definitely to a certain degree. Um, you know, Giannis I think is, you know, responsible for even more of that than he was last year, just because, you know, Brogdon's out of the picture. Um, but, Big picture, Milwaukee's offense is still number two in the league as we're speaking right now. They've had some very successful nights. There's been a couple of eggs that have been confusing to me and kind of make me wonder whether they are in a little bit of a you know a hangover effect this season, just knowing that they're not that young, up com- up-and-coming whippersnapper type team like they were last year where it was, everything was new and they were getting into an incredible groove for month after month and, and just wanting to punish everybody. I'm not sure I've seen the Bucks reach that level or sustain that level so far this season. Um, but the basic math of their offense is still penciling out, and they should be on track to me, uh, you know, to have a, a very high win total in the regular season. So it's not the end of the world, but I do think some of the other pressure uh, on going out after a guy like Chris Paul just comes from Philly looming. You know, Philly has looked awesome. Philly has definitely looked better than Milwaukee so far to start the season. They're more talented. They're more rugged. They're bigger. Um, I would say you know, their, their lineup, you know, one to five is better than Milwaukee's one to five. And so uh, that's going to apply pressure as well. It's not just about, hey, we got to keep Giannis happy. We got to keep him in town. We got to resign him. But it's also about, hey, there's a one other team in this conference that really poses big time problems for us. Do we have enough talent to take them down? I think those are the questions that are going to drive Milwaukee's thinking uh, as we go forward here.
0: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. paid by up-level rewards paid participation required after portrayal
5: attention all listeners are you ready to earn 750 dollars? well get ready because i'm about to introduce you to get 750.com the ultimate way to earn here's the scoop instead of just streaming shows or playing games on your phone for nothing you have the chance to earn additional cash That's right, from trying out new subscriptions to playing your favorite mobile games, you can get extra cash in your pocket. Simply sign up at GetMy750.com and follow the instructions to start earning immediately. So, what are you waiting for? Turn your favorite apps into real cash. With GetMy750.com, don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to earn rewards for things you're already doing on your phone. Check out GetMy750.com today. That's right, get started right now at GetMy750.com. Just go to GetMy750.com or Google Get My750 Cash. Follow the simple instructions and get your
3: $750.
5: That's getmy750.com. Get my750.com.
3: We got another question from Stav in Australia, one of the greatest and longest standing Open Floor Globe members. He writes: Has any team in NBA history gone winless at home for an entire season? If not, could the Warriors be the first to achieve this milestone? And I had to look this one up, Rob. So the 2012 Bobcats had four home wins out of 66 games. The 1948 Providence Steamrollers had two home wins in a 48-game season. The 1973 Sixers had five home wins in an 82-game season. And the 1953 Philadelphia Warriors had five home wins in a 69-game season. So basically... We're looking at a record here for an 82-game season if Golden State wins fewer than five home games. If they just punt on Curry, like if the three-month timeline comes and goes and then they say, you know what, he needs another month, or uh, you know, they kind of drag it out and they just sit him for the rest of the, the year, is it possible they win fewer than five home games? What do you think?
4: You know, I'm always rooting for history, Ben. I always want to see something new. <laughs> I, think, I think the Warriors have a chance to be really special this year. In, in terms of their futility at the Chase Center, I think I think they're going to be in the running for, I mean, I have a hard time imagining they even get to double digit wins at home unless something pretty dramatic changes.
3: Yeah, I think it's in play. I'm not going to rule it out as long as Steph is out and, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, I would assume D'Angelo Russell is going to be able to pick up a few here and there, so I'm, I'm not going to bet on it. Uh, But it's hilarious how quickly things have shifted from, hey, can the Warriors win 73 games to, can they (laughs) eke out five home wins like three years later? Um, You you mentioned the futility at the Chase Center. Did you happen to watch the end game against the Charlotte Hornets uh, over the weekend? I don't know why I was doing this. Maybe I should have just been like, you know, ice picking my eyeballs instead, but I decided to watch it. It was absolutely ludicrous, Rob. The Warriors were trailing by one with 25 seconds left, okay? Here is the following things that had happened. And remember, they have the ball on the sideline, 25 seconds. So you assume they can milk it for a last shot, potential game winner, right? Like that would be one option. They could also try to score quickly and play defense. I don't know exactly how you want to play that, but that's the scenario. Here's what happened. They threw in the inbounds pass immediately to the Hornets turnover. Then they committed a foul. The foul shooter missed both free throws, but they, con- they conceded the offensive rebound. They fouled. The foul shooter made the first free throw, missed the second. The Warriors conceded an offensive <laughs> rebound again. Then they got into a jump ball, but they lost the jump ball. So then they fouled again. Then, <laughs> after the free throws, they threw a Hail Mary pass that was intercepted for a turnover. They fouled again. Now trailing by six, they threw the ball in, missed a three-pointer, and the game was over. They lost by six. So that was not ideal. And that entire sequence, by the way, included multiple reviews that took like 20 minutes to play out. So again, when we're looking at the value proposition of these million-dollar suites at the Chase Center, uh, not sure the billionaires got their money's worth on that one.
4: Now, I'm sure it's a long-term investment. They're really playing the long game for like the 2030 season, you know?
3: No doubt about it. Um, well, they've got the season The season licenses go for like, you know, 25 years. So maybe, you know, one of Steph Curry's children can come along and save the day. I don't know exactly how this is going to play out. Uh, let's shift gears here real quick to a very thoughtful email that we got from a listener in LA. He writes... I'm starting to get frustrated with how the NBA media covers mental health. When I read about Kyrie Irving's mood swings, I see something I understand. As a person with depression and anxiety, I can often feel the weight of it. Even if I'm surrounded by people who I love in an ostensibly happy moment, anything can trigger negative feelings. And often it doesn't have anything to do with the people I'm next to. It just happens. You want to let it go and participate, but the weight is felt and it's hard. And he's referring to this, uh, you know, Jackie McMullen article, uh, on ESPN, which included a few situations where Kyrie's behavior kind of raised some eyebrows here recently. Um, I think those specific incidents were kind of called out by aggregators and maybe the context of how she was painting his uh, arrival in Brooklyn was lost a little bit in in certain tweets. Uh, and I think that's really what uh, angered our emailer. Uh, he he cl- concludes Kyrie's effectiveness in his second attempt to lead should be evaluated Uh, by how the Nets do on the court, not from the uneducated psychoanalysis of media personalities who are looking at four bad games. It makes it harder on other people who struggle with their mental health. It just sucks. So Rob, uh, what's your takeaway from how that whole Kyrie article came out and, and how it was received and the conversation around it? I do believe immediately afterwards, Kyrie's teammates stood up for him, you know, pretty much unanimously. And Kyrie did not really conduct media, I think, for the first day or two after that. Uh, Can't blame him there, frankly, given the, you know, the way uh, the whole thing was handled. Uh, I think that's an understandable position from him. Usually, I'm pretty hard on guys who who duck the media. But in that situation, uh, I get his frustration. Um, What's your take?
4: I think there's a lot to unpack with it. And I want to thank this email or two. I thought this was a really thoughtful framing. And it's it's even a much longer and more nuanced question than we're able to read in time here. But I mean, for starters, I'm just not comfortable with the public diagnosis of Kyrie. And that's a media problem. That's a fan on Twitter problem. Just the idea that you look at someone's public behavior and try to assign a diagnosis to them makes me pretty uncomfortable. And so like putting that part of it aside, I do think you know there's this is there's this very fine line you have to walk in terms of i understand wanting to see kyrie through your own experience as this emailer did but i also you know dealing with mental illness dealing with any complications of mental illness is not an excuse from accountability in certain ways and that's why i think teams have such a hard time understanding it sports are by no means the most advanced of industries in terms of understanding mental illness the nba i think in a lot of senses it's been an inconvenience over time, and they're just now starting to grapple with the widespread and public perception of it. And they've done okay. I think they're trying, uh, at least from a public facing perspective, to do their best. But the conversation is hard. And I think one of the things that this emailer pointed out was that, you know, talked about DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love, and and people have been a little bit more, more outward about their mental illness and the idea that you shouldn't have to write a player's tribune article to get the benefit of the doubt in certain ways or for people around you to understand you i think that is very well put and people are going to deal with this stuff in their own in their own fashion some are going to put it out there some want to deal with it internally or with you know friends or family only you know they want to keep things behind closed doors and i think that's a perfectly valid way to do it as long as you're getting the kinds of support you need but it's tricky. And it's tricky because this is such a public line of work in which people are making tens and millions of dollars. And I think the companies that are investing those tens of millions of dollars do have a certain expectation in terms of what you're going to do when you show up for work every day. And so when you talk about a guy like Kyrie, who, you know, the reporting is on record that when he was with the Cavs during the playoffs, showed up and just didn't talk to any of his teammates for days on end. That's certainly noteworthy. That's certainly a problem. That's something that could affect everybody's efficacy in their work and something that, you know, I think Jackie's story was really thoughtful in terms of the way it framed this stuff, which was, I mean, for one, Jackie's done more writing and reporting about mental health in the NBA than pretty much anyone. And it wasn't really a part of the story. It was just, here are some things that members of the Nets have noticed about Kyrie Irving's temperament. And behavior and just who he is as a person as they're all kind of getting to know each other. And really the story was about here's this infrastructure of a team that was very thoughtfully assembled in terms of its culture, who's now trying to grapple with not mental illness, not Kyrie's personality, but with superstars, with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, these two guys who are accustomed to because of their talent having the world orbit around them, and what that means for a franchise that wanted to identify as a certain thing now that they have to kind of oblige these stars in particular ways. I think, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of that was lost in terms of the aggregation and the reaction cycle of it. But it's it's hard to to get at this stuff through nuance, and it's hard to hold Kyrie accountable for being a star and someone who's going to have pressure on his shoulders and responsibility as the leader of a team while also being sensitive to the fact that he's going to go about those things differently than anybody else. And I think we can do that without you know, putting a diagnosis on him. It's just a matter of coming at it with understanding and as much empathy as we can. And also trying to say, hey, look, like all these guys have a job to do. They're going to do it differently, but they do ultimately have those responsibilities as superstars.
3: Yeah, I think what bothered me about the reaction cycle more than anything was that Kyrie just copped to a lot of this stuff at media day. He said that he was really torn up by his grandfather's death, that it led to some serious uh, grief. Uh, you know, feelings uh, that lasted for months over the course of last season. He, he hinted that he needed to ask for help and didn't, and that he, you know, basically was suffering from depression. So he's already laid this all out. We're not really playing this guessing game or psychoanalysis. Like he's, he's been pretty upfront about it. Uh, granted, he didn't write the 15,000 word essay uh, on the Players' Tribune, like the email I was mentioning, or, or like you mentioned, but he's been pretty candid. Um, and, you know, to me, Once he kind of came forward with that stuff and it wasn't just a matter of, okay, this is this unpredictable superstar who nobody knows what to deal with. And it's okay. This is a guy who understands, uh, he's really going through stuff and he doesn't know exactly how to manage it. And if he doesn't know how to manage it, the people around him aren't going to know how to manage him. Um, I think that's when the the whole thing shifted. I think there was some irresponsible behavior on behalf of secondary media outlets, in terms of how they presented uh, the information that was in Jackie's story. I thought she did a fine job. I'm with you on that. No, no problem there, like none whatsoever. And I think that, you know, she's one of the most important, you know, living basketball writers, sports writers that there, that there is right now uh, anywhere. Um, But In general, I'm pro aggregation. I understand that there's a lot of people out there who just want the juiciest bit. I know there's a lot of people in my position who are anti-aggregation. I've had people, you know, take things that we say on this podcast or that I write, you know, twist them and, you know, it leads to death threats on various social media platforms, you know, almost instantaneously. To me, I just charge that to the game. Because I understand, you know, the need to feed the beast. I understand how the media complex works around the NBA, and I understand that there's a lot more people who care about that juicy sentence than there are people willing to read, you know, fifteen hundred words or two thousand words. So I get it. Um, but there is a responsibility in how you handle that information, especially if it's sensitive stuff. And I think that you know some of the outlets were just too quick to jump on, you know, goofy Kyrie or unpredictable Kyrie. You know, this narrative, uh, you know, that's been out there for years about, you know, his, his wacky behavior um, and not treat it appropriately. Uh, and it's one of those situations that kind of comes back to the golden rule, right? If you or one of your family members was going through this type of stuff, would you want it presented in the same way where it's like, oh, here's this, you know, crazy lunatic again, he, he's at it. Um, and I understand that. But with Kyrie, though, it's tough because he did kind of make his bed here a little bit with the conspiracy theory stuff a few years ago. And I think that is also a takeaway for other players. Um, You know, if you want to flirt and be goofy and kind of be different and flirt with these kind of crazy ideas on the internet and build up your brand that way, there are potential negative repercussions. You are exposing yourself to a backlash, uh, you know, depending on how the rest of your career goes out. I think that's just a fact. If, If Kyrie had never... Said anything controversial? Kind of, you know, if he had just been the the boring superstar, you know, the the guy who sells the Pepsi and and keeps it moving, um, I don't know if there would be as much attention or focus by the entire entire media on some of these specific episodes. What do you think?
4: Well, I think there's there's kind of compounding issues here, which is there's Kyrie as a person and as a personal brand. Which, as you're saying, if you project a certain kind of image, that can be susceptible to jokes and punchlines of a particular kind, or in this case, kind of twisting, you know, a couple of incidents into public diagnosis or whatever it may be. And then there's the question of, you know, when you're a person who lives and works very closely with a broader group, in this case, like a basketball team, I mean, you're traveling with these people, you're in a locker room with these people, you're practicing and shooting around and playing high stakes games with these people. Like, your mood is going to have an impact on them. And so it was It was interesting to me that, the, you know, the quote that seemed like it got pulled and grabbed onto the most was this idea about Kyrie having mood swings. And that was, that was the phrase that I think was in Jackie's original piece, which, one, this doesn't seem like breaking news exactly. This isn't something we didn't know about Kyrie in terms of his temperament. But also when you work, as, you know, as a member of a team, your temperament is going to affect the people around you. And so we have to be honest about that stuff. We want to be, you know, again, sensitive to it in terms of the individual. But if you are susceptible to certain kinds of swings or certain kinds of anything that affects your mood in a particular way, and people are in that close proximity and that concerted proximity around you, it's going to have an effect on the ecosystem. And it's something that we can't be naive and pretend that the Nets weren't asking about and weren't doing their due diligence on and weren't trying to grapple with before giving him, you know, like $130, 140000000 million, whatever the number ended up being. So from that perspective, it is strange to me that this became as explosive a thing as it did because all the story really said was that Kyrie is a guy who is, who you know, who we thought he was and that the Nets tried to get to the bottom of who that was and even now are starting to, are trying to grapple with what that means.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it does confirm a lot of the concerns that people had about their offseason approach, uh, myself included. And we'll see what happens when Kevin Durant, uh, you know, falls into this situation. Does he make things better uh, or does he make things worse once he's on the court or will it not matter? I mean, are these some issues that are off the court that are, you know, so significant that, uh, you know, the, the usual team up superstar thing is not going to be as influential as we thought? That's something to track, I think, as we go forward over the next 12 months. Hey, Rob, on a lighter note, we're going to close out with this one from James. He writes, Rodney Hood could not get hired at Applebee's. He has to be the least flair guy in the NBA. And, uh, you know, that's a reference to their buttons and all the things that the, the Applebee's employees like to put on there to kind of stand out and be distinguished. But James runs it down. Rodney Hood has no arm sleeves, no headbands, no tights. He keeps a standard business haircut. He has no visible tattoos. His his uniform seems to be not totally fitted. In other words, he's not, you know, uh sizing down a few like Dwight Howard to kind of show off his physique. He's just, you know, kind of the the normal right in the middle type of guy. First of all, Rob, did you notice this? And what do you make of it? Uh like if you were an NBA player, would you follow the Rodney Hood model and just be straightforward or would you add some flair? What would you do?
4: It had never really occurred to me until James pointed this out. But then I started thinking about what flair I would want Rodney Hood to wear, like what weird historical NBA accessory could we throw on him to give him a little flavor. And I kind of settled on the mid-2000s Amari Stoudemire, like new age rec specs, I think would be a really good look for him. Personally, I'm like, I'm very much a headband person, uh, mostly for practical reasons. But I think for Rodney, that would be a really good look.
3: I was trying to picture what I would wear. Um, I keep coming up with this idea of a spacesuit. Okay. I would wear basically the compression undershirt that Anthony Davis wears, right? That kind of like goes down to your mid bicep. Then I would definitely wear arm sleeves on both arms. So essentially my entire skin would be covered. (laughs) And then below I would have Relatively short, like brawny style shorts. I'm not going to fold them over like those guys do for Sierra Canyon, but you know, relatively form fitting shorts. But then I would have white tights underneath, and then I think I would try to have like compression socks underneath my normal socks. So basically, I, like I think for home games, I would try to go all white with all of that, and then for road games, I would try to just go completely black. Uh, I'm looking, I, I'm picturing Neil Armstrong sort of is what I'm going for. Obviously, no helmet with the glass. What do you think, Rob? Would would that make me a uh, a fashion icon uh, in today's NBA?
4: I mean, you'd certainly stand out. So I guess that makes you a fashion icon to somebody. But it, it actually reminds me of I can't remember how many years ago this was now. Where I think it was the Lakers and Celtics did like a throwback game. They wore you know some some retro versions of their jerseys and like complete with the really short shorts. And I thought NBA players then kind of copped out by doing like long compression shorts under these you know, short NBA shorts, which I don't think really works. And it kind of reminds me if you're going head to toe, you know, covering every inch of skin possible with compression clothing. I don't, I don't know if it's going to be a great look for you, Ben.
3: I also forgot to mention, I want white wristbands like Matt Mooney. Uh, He played at Texas tech. I think he was bouncing around on a summer league team too. I don't know if he's stuck, but he really brought the wristbands on both wrist look back in a big time way during the NCAA tournament uh, last year. So I think I'm adding that to my uh, portfolio as well. I don't think I'm going headband. I think I'm going to let my uh, my own business haircut just kind of uh, breathe <laughs> and, and stand for itself. Uh, but I don't know, man. That seems like a pretty dope look. All the NBA players who are listening, feel free to cop it. Just take it from me. I'll give it to you. Uh, you know, shout me out if you get the chance on Instagram at Ben Oliver. but otherwise just keep it moving. Hey, Rob, we've reached the end of another episode. Uh, thanks so much to the Open Floor Globe for sending in all those great emails. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Look how much ground we covered with your guys' help sending in these great topics and prompts for us to weigh in on. Uh, we're also on Apple Podcasts. You can find our page by searching uh, for two words. That's open floor. Once you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. It really helps us spread the word. Um, as I mentioned, Ben Ben.Golver on Instagram. And Rob, until later this week, I will talk to you.
4: Later, Ben.
2: Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
6: Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit MortonBuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton Buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings Is 100% employee owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process. Starting before the walls even go up, visit MortonBuildings.com to get started today.
4: An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland. A man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car.